Well, let's see. Now, we have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. Uh That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second. Ron and Anian. on third. I think the parts problem is getting worse, and I I think to a large degree, it's, it's almost a matter of national security. Put me in cold. Car doctor, because I think the majority of people, when faced with the dilemma of performing that repair on a hundred thousand mile vehicle, oh, I don't want to do that. I'll buy a new car. The only the thing- problem is a new one's fifty, sixty grand, though. Right. You know, N- not a problem for them. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the Car Doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, the car doctor, here's Ronnie. It's time to start your engines. Hello and welcome, Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. Here to take your calls and answer your questions. I love it when baseball season's starting up. Bud and Lou come out to play and uh, help me do the radio show as we kick off this hour. So uh, proud and honored to be here with them today. Um, a lot going on this hour. We're going to be joined by Jim Grundy. Jim is the president and the founder of Grundy Insurance down around the bottom of the hour. Jim's going to stop by to talk to us about classic car insurance. So if you're thinking of taking that classic out of the garage and you've got some questions, Jim's got the answers. As, uh, we're going to sit down and talk with him. And I can tell you in the pre-show interview, uh, sitting and talking to Jim as we were getting ready to do this, um, he's a fun guy. He's got a lot of information and he has a real passion for this so you're going to enjoy it so you want to stick around for that and then i thought i would start off with a little bit of a challenge and a question for each and every one of you you know i I took a class this week with the folks at atg automotive training group atgtraining.com and right off the bat and i've always agreed with this they talk about the diagnostic path and there are six or seven steps that are part of any diagnosis and in a lot of your calls when you call in I never hear anybody talk about the first step, if they're a mechanic, or that the mechanic did it with them, okay, or what the mechanic did as far as steps to be taken. So here's what we're going to do. Let's have a little fun this hour while we can, if we can, that um, I'm looking for the first step in any diagnosis. If you're the customer... This is something the mechanic should be saying to you. And if you're the mechanic, this is something you should be saying to the customer. What's the first step in any interview? And here's the prize, okay? Because there's always a prize here on The Car Doctor. We're going to give away one of the OBD... OBD2 Diagnostics Made Easy by Steve Cook. Steve has been a technical writer, instructor, mechanic for about a million years, just like me. We were both born around the same time. We're both as old as dirt. Uh, Steve's written a really great book, OBD2 Diagnostics Made Easy. It's available out there on Amazon, Amazon.com. But um, we'll give away a copy of Steve's book. we got about a half a dozen of these to give away. Let's kick one off today as uh, we kick off this hour of the car doctor. So the question is, what is the first step in any diagnosis as per ATG, and I agree with it, the ATG training group manual, what is the first thing that should be done as part of any diagnosis? And uh, I think it's a fairly easy, straightforward question. Um, I'm looking for an answer. Let's go over and talk to Reggie in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Some comments about a previous call, 65 Mustang. Reggie, welcome to the car doctor, sir. What's going on? Good afternoon. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was, uh, I owned a couple of 1969 Ford Fairlanes back in the 1980s. Okay. And, uh, I had the brake problem, and it turned out it was the master cylinder was leaking. And then, anyway, 
the brake fluid, it was a manual manual brakes, not the power brakes, but the, the brake fluid leaked through and stained the carpeting behind the pedals. Okay. So I, I wonder that guy with the Mustang, before he takes that, moves it away from the firewall, he can look at his carpeting around that, uh, at the back of the firewall, or if possible, he could even remove that front section of carpeting to be able to see the back back of the firewall itself. Yeah, well, he, he has, he has yeah. power brakes on his, so he, has, yeah, a, he yeah. has a booster, so it's going to be further away. But I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I get what you're saying. I, yeah. yeah, as I was sitting on hold, I thought, oh, yeah, I remember that from the old days, the master cylinder sat out ahead of that booster, so maybe it just leaks into the booster and accumulates right. and doesn't doesn't travel down that rod. Yeah, that's what I'm betting. Okay. But, you know, listen, uh-huh. it's, it's, okay. it's valid thoughts, brother. I, I get it. Um, yep. Valid thoughts. So let me ask you, you want to take a crack at our prize this hour? What what should be the first step in any diagnosis? That's that's okay. I'll let someone else handle that. Okay. All right. Listen, Reggie, okay. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. You're, good take day good care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, that's it's as simple as that. Um, uh, you know, that's... <laughs> My answers are up on your screen. Uh, your answers are pray or rain dance. No, Tom, that's not the first step. In Darn. It. But you see, the, the the problem becomes that, and it's funny, right? How long have I been doing this? 1991, 27 years? Everybody talks about, I changed this, I changed that. And I, well, not everybody, but not as many as I would like. And I would like everyone to say, hey, I tested this. I checked that. I, I examined this. It's, uh, you know, and I do it because I guess, and we're human, we make these mistakes. But, you know, I think it's this. I think it's that. You know, we've got to get away. We've got to get out of thinking. We've got to start diagnosing. And that's that's really the way it, 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 it kind of comes back to. Uh, Rich writes in from an email. Ron, I've got a 2006 Ford Ranger. It's got a loose harmonic damper. Drives fine. The shop says to fix it, I must replace the drive shaft, too. Is that true? Rich, I kind of need more information. It sounds like what you're describing is a loose harmonic balancer on the front of the engine. And my question would be, is this a problem with the front of the crank? Is the crank damaged? Did the bolt come loose and it's allowed the dampener to vibrate and, and bounce around? Um, or is there more to it than that? So, um, you know, that's first step. Yeah, whatever they do to fix the balancer, they got to fix the balancer. The, the the second part of that becomes that the shop says you have to replace the drive shaft. I think what they're referencing is, and maybe, and I'm guessing, we'd have to talk to the shop, is it possible that the harmonic balancer, the damper, created such a vibration that the a weight or weights fell off the drive shaft and they're able to see a broken spot weld? So maybe they're trying to say that the drive shaft itself has to be checked for uh, for balance and square. So, um, you know, just take it one step at a time. You need to ask them more questions uh, to see where that's going. Can we uh, get over to line uh, two? Is that two? Do we have that ability? Um, I think we're stuck here for the second. Um, you know, Tom's Tom's a busy guy today. I should point out Tom's doing the whole gig by himself today. Um, Mikey is uh, Mikey is out sick amongst the missing, and Tony has um, Tony is uh, amongst the missing too. Um, so let me uh, let me pull over and let me do this. Hey Tom, can I go to line two? Um, wait, Tom's looking at me. So Tom, I'd like to go to line two and ask that guy a question. So Tom says yes, I can go to line two. Ed, are you there, sir? Yes, sir. You want to take you want to take a poke? Let me let me let me set the stage. So we're we're talking about diagnostics this hour, and uh, part of the question was uh, what should be the first step in any diagnostic routine of any problem? What do you think it is, Ed? 
Well, I start with calling a good mechanic. No, no, sir. Good answer, but yeah, that's not the answer I'm looking for. It's something very specific. Oh, okay. It's, it's uh, but I appreciate okay. the thought. It's it's something that mechanics should be Have doing as part of very first step. You're welcome, sir. You have a good question too. Uh, good day too. Let's go over to Dave. Dave from Iowa. Dave, you got a you got an answer to the question? Yeah, I got a, an answer for you. Go ahead. The first thing you need to do is talk to the mechanic, and the mechanic has to say. Uh, ask you, he has to ask you what problems you're having with the car. Dave, you know, what, what to do. You're absolutely right. The first step in any diagnosis, I don't care what it is, has to be the mechanic and the customer have to have an interview. The vehicle owner has to have an interview with the guy trying to fix it. Now, if it's your car, obviously you yeah. don't need to do that. But and, and so many people don't do that. So many mechanics will make the mistake where they'll, they'll, they'll drive in and, you know, the check engine light's on, and right away they'll start fixing the check engine light, or, gee, the car stalled two days ago. There's no interview process. The interview process is the first most important step um, in any diagnosis. I appreciate you playing today, Dave. We're going to be sending you out a copy of Steve Cook's OBD2 Diagnostics Made Easy. It is a great book um, uh, packed with information. It's 150-some-odd pages long. Color pictures done by, I believe, his daughter. Uh, she did the cover and uh, pictures throughout. It's it's just a real solid piece of reading information. If you've got an OBD2 diagnostic vehicle, that's the book to have. Dave, thanks for staying. Stay on the line, and uh, thanks for playing today. And uh, Tom will get your information. We'll get that out to you this week in the mail. I'm Ron Annie, the car doctor. Let's pull over and take a pause. Don't go away. Little GTO, you really look at Three deuces and a four-speed. Need advice on how to maintain that classic GTO? Ron is the guy. 855-560-9900. Here's Ron. Hey, let's go to line two. Let's talk to, uh, I can't think of who that is in Maryland. That's uh, someone in Maryland, right, Tom? Al. Al in Maryland. I'm sorry, Al. Uh, we lost our, Hi, Ron, we lost our how phones. you doing? Good, Love sir. your show. Love you, sir. So listen, you heard, you know, Dave from Iowa answered the question about what's the first step in any diagnosis, and I know you wanted to answer that question. What was your answer, just out of curiosity? My answer is the first thing the mechanic does is listen to the customer. You've right. got to find out what the symptoms yep. are. Customer interview. You know, yep. What's the problem? Yep. If you don't know the problem, you're never going to get the solution. Right, and, that's, and that's, that, 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 I think, is the biggest problem or what's the biggest cause of misdiagnosis. So let me ask you this. The ATG training manual, atgtraining.com, they list, uh, they list five other steps. One of them, scan tool. What do you think one of those yeah. other steps might be? What are some of the other things you might do in the course of a diagnosis? Uh, well, after you listen to the customer, I think you might drive the car. You might have a finer sense of what the symptoms are than the customer might be. I think driving the car. But uh, you ought to be taking some hard measurements. Um, you put it on an analyzer. You get some hard measurements. Uh, maybe you get some codes. You've got to get as much data as you can in order to define what the problem might yep. be. The yep. last thing you do is look in the parts catalog. Right. You don't monkey with that until you gather enough data to figure out what the problem might you be. Know, you know, Al, that's good enough for me. The, the number two step, according to ATG, and I agree with this also, is research. Three is visual inspection. Four yeah. is a scan tool. Five is a road test, and six is your personal experience. What have you learned being in the field? You know what, Al? That's we're going right. to send you out a copy of OBD2 Diagnostics Made Easy. Steve
Steve Cook has written it. He has been an instructor in the automotive industry 20-plus years. It's uh, just a good, solid 150-page book Great. explaining the basics of OBD2 diagnostics. It's also available up on Amazon. If anybody's interested, they can get out to uh, you know Amazon and go look up OBD2 Diagnostics Made Easy. The author's name is Steve Cook. Stay on the line while Tom, uh, while Tom picks up and gets your information, and uh, we'll get hey, a copy of that. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate You're it. You're very welcome, Mal. Thanks for playing and being part of the Car Doctor family. Um, yeah, it's you know th- there is a routine for diagnostics. There's it's not just plugging a scan tool. The scan tool tells you what's wrong with the car. Scan tool doesn't tell you anything. The scan tool gives you information. The scan tool is um, is is more along the lines of uh, you know it's an information provider, and then what you do with it, you kind of take it from there. So just keep that in mind. Let's go over and talk to Jim in Missouri on line one. Let's go talk to Jim about the 05 Ranger that's pinging. Jim, where do you stand with this truck right now? Well, it uh, obviously it's still pinging. Okay. Um, I had a buddy that's got a pretty good scanner, and we hooked it up last night, and uh, it shows that everything's working. It shows when you uh, when you rev up, it, it shows the EGR valve, you know, opening up and all that kind of thing. Okay. But his scanner was not able to tell the EGR valve to open while you're idling. It said this feature not available or something to that effect. So maybe it's not available on an 05. So my so my next question is, sure, because I would love to see the uh, I would love to see us if we were able to open the EGR valve at idle, either electrically or uh, vacuum wise, um, to see does the vehicle stall. The vehicle's got to stall clean, because if those if those EGR passages are restricted, and if I remember right, this is a higher mileage truck, Jim. I'm trying to remember the the vehicle. It's two hundred fifty thousand, yeah. but I I had the engine rebuilt. There's only ten thousand on the engine. Okay, I just you know I'm just I've just got a concern for do I have a carbon deposit issue? I don't think so in ten thousand miles, but do I have an issue with you know? Let's go through basics. Tell me what's good. I'll tell you what's bad. Uh, you know, if we can get the EGR valve to open and the vehicle stalls, then I you know I can eliminate EGR off the list. All right. right. Uh, this is an O five. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to remember now. Would this vehicle, would the pinging go away if the vehicle was um, run on super? Was it on premium? Did did it, it change it, it? It changes a little bit, but it does not go away. Okay, so it's it still always pings and detonates. Yeah. Right. Okay. Then the next and thing. And temperature sensitive. When it was in the 30s here, I was fine. But now we're getting into the 50s and 60s, and it's it's pinging away pretty bad. Okay. So then my next question is: I wonder if fuel mixture is. Uh, I wonder how lean this is. And the reason I say it like that is because lean. You know, you put more oxygen to a fire, it tends to snap, crackle, pop. If the vehicle is running really super lean, do we have an issue? with too much oxygen in the mix. I wonder what fuel trim is on this truck. I wonder how right it is, or how wrong it is for that matter. It, at idle, it was showing 2-point-something on the short term and 5-point-something on the long term. And then where is it cruising down the road when the pinging's occurring? Um, I don't know. Okay. So I'd, I'd like to see what that is. Is that within a normal range? And then I'd also like to see, this is a mass airflow sensor. What engine was this? Was this the 3.0 or the 4.0? It's the 2.3. Okay, this is the 4-banger. Okay. So this should be a mass airflow sensor engine. What's the mass airflow sensor showing us? Does it show us the potential? Could that have an issue? Is it 
Is that affecting air volume? Is that affecting mixture as well? Do this. Take it down the well, road. I, re- I, re- I replaced it. Yeah, but that doesn't tell us if it's good or not. It doesn't tell you if the wiring's any good, right? It doesn't right. tell you if the connections to the PCM are any good. So do this. Let's let's learn how a mass airflow sensor reports back. Get the temp- get the engine up to normal operating temperature, and from a twenty mile an hour roll, find a find a long flat straight strip of road, and put your foot to the floor. Accelerate. Bring up on the scan tool. Do this with somebody else in the car. Bring up on the scan tool. Look at calculated load. Calculated load is a measurement of how much, you know, intake the mass airflow can swallow in a sense. It's how much air it's breathing in. Breathe in hard. That's what the mass air is doing. It should show you a calculated load value in the 85 to 100% range. If it's down low, I'm going to tell you there's a mass airflow sensor issue. It's under-reporting. And that could, or it's over, yeah, it's underreporting, and that could be an issue. And if you want to know, if you want to do this, all right, if you want to learn how to test the mass airflow, do you have another vehicle that runs normal? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Do that. Do that test. It has a mass airflow sensor on it. It's a newer vehicle. Oh well, I got a 2014. Yeah, that'll work. Calculated load is calculated load. Mass airflow is mass airflow. Um, a mass airflow sensor vehicle, you hook up an OBD2 scan tool, pretty much doesn't matter what it is. Look at calculated load. Do that 20 to 25 mile an hour kick on a long flat road. Put your foot through the headlight. You should see calculated load values of over 85 to 90 percent. And that's and you'll and you'll learn how to do it. And that's the reason why I say start out on a healthy car, then transfer that to the broken car. All right. Okay. I'm not so okay. I'm not so unconvinced that this is going to come back to a timing issue, and I'm wondering in the back of my mind, do you have a PCM problem? Do you have a computer issue? I've seen Ford computers do some funny things as they get older. Unfortunately, you've got to test your way around and look at everything else before you can condemn it. There is no real right. test for what I'm thinking. Well, and I I sent it off to a shop in Illinois. And they have it checked out and repaired because I decided that's what was wrong a long time ago. Right, and it wasn't. And and they said they can't find a thing wrong with it. Right, they sent it back. Right, eighty five dollars later. <laughs> right. Well, and and you know my whole my whole thing with this, you know, we're going to send it to a shop and have them test it. Is I don't think anybody but the vehicle manufacturer has the ability or the capability to test at the same level as Ford Engineering. So you know you may want to try and see if you can find a junkyard computer for giggles for a hundred bucks and slap that in, but. We'll get there. Let's do some testing first. Do that stuff. Call me back next week. Coming up next, Jim Grundy, Grundy Insurance. Time to get that classic out of garage. Time to get some insurance on it. Stick around. The car doctor's got the answers. We'll be back right after this. back, Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor. You know, we talk an awful lot, you and I, about cars, but we also talk about, and your questions show me your interest, in classic cars. And with spring, summer cruising season right around the corner, we thought it would be very appropriate to talk about, you know, classic vehicle insurance and classic vehicles, taking care of them on the paperwork side. So we've reached out to one of the industry's best and finest, Jim Grundy. He's the president of Grundy Insurance. He's an avid collector of all eras of automobiles. His passions for brass era cars don't get him started, folks, because uh, we had a heck of a pre-show conversation, him and I, and he's a real interesting guy to talk to. He knows his stuff, and we're glad to have him here with us. Jim Grundy, welcome to the car, Doctor, sir. 
Hey, Ron, thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Listen, uh, question number one, right? Let's start at the beginning. People out there saying, well, I've got a classic. At what point does a vehicle qualify for classic vehicle insurance? That's a pretty easy question, Ron, but it's an answer people don't always com- understand. And the answer is we'll insure any car from 2019, as far back as they go, say 1896 when they started, but the car has got to have some milestone recognition, uh, limited edition production car. You know, it's got to, it's got to have collectible value. So, if somebody came to you with a 2019 Ford Shelby Mustang, something or other, that's a collectible. We insured one today. Okay, but if somebody came to you with a Ford, a 2019 Ford Fusion, yeah, probably not so much collectible. Not so much because it's really being delivered on a on a retail basis is just general transportation as right. opposed to collectible. But now we're seeing, you know, you go to car shows now, right? And I, I've been to car shows. You'll see, gee whiz, you see Pintos. We'll talk Ford, right? You see Pintos at car shows. Um, it's a classic now, right? A 79 it's Pinto. It's a classic. Yeah. It's a classic, and you know, a lot of them are customs. A lot of the uh, foreign cars are pretty hyped-up tuner cars. We consider all that stuff. Right. So, so you know, if somebody came to you with a tuner, with a late model Honda that was, you know, lowered to the ground with, you know, loud exhaust and, and, and different tires and modified suspension, that's a collectible. It may, it may not be my taste, but I can sure understand why people do it and we're willing to ensure that. The, the number one rules that we consider, Ron, are pretty simple. The cars can't be your daily transportation for commuting to and from work and going to the store. Right. You have to have a regular car for that. And the cars have to be well-maintained and garaged when they're not being driven. And if you've got a car as, a, as an extra car, we'll call it, that you drive on weekends, you drive for fun, and you drive for car events, that's what we insure for. Gotcha. Interesting. Wow, that, that really broadens the field, and um, that that really does define what it is. I like that. So... Then let me ask you this, Jim. What guidelines does someone follow to figure out what the value of the car is so that they can insure it properly? Because we just talked about a range of cars, right, from a 2019 Shelby to a 79 Pinto to a Tuner to a – I mean, how do you determine value? Well, let's go right to what we offer, and we sell agreed value insurance. What agreed value insurance is, means is that when you as the policyholder and we as the insurance company – come together and we agree on a value that we'll insure your car for, that's how much you get. If the car is destroyed in an accident, destroyed in a fire, lost, stolen, anything like that, what our policy says is what you get. Now, that's not to be confused with stated value, which is a very confusing term. Stated value actually just means, well, this is the most you're going to ever get, so I don't have any high hopes. And we're probably going to have our appraiser deduct for age, wear and tear, depreciation, and all that stuff, right. just like a regular car policy does. So, so now, how do we agree on that value? Right. Most people come to us with a pretty good knowledge and predetermined idea of how much they want to insure their car for. Number one, they know what they paid for it. Number two, they know how much money they've spent restoring it or customizing it or building it. And obviously, everybody today has a world of access on the Internet and auction results to see what cars are worth. 
And as long as we come in in a reasonably close uh, box of what the fair market value of a car is based on its age, based on its model, based on its condition, based on its customization, we generally agree 95% of the time with the value that the policyholder owner submits to us. And if we don't agree, it usually takes us a couple passes. Uh, well, how come, what for, why not, what do you do that's special that makes your car better? Um, why don't you want to insure it for quite as much as we think it's worth? Because it goes both ways. Right. Some people want us to insure for more than we might think it's worth all the time. And some people want to insure for less because they're afraid they don't want to pay too much premium. So let me so ask you, so wait a minute, so let me ask you this question. Agree. Wait, let me ask you this question. So let's say you get a, a, a 69 Camaro, all right, collectible car, right? Mm-hmm. 69 Camaro, Perfect. and it's got a stated, it's got an agreed value of $20,000. And I'm, I'm low here, but let's just say it's a $20,000 69 Camaro. Next okay. week, next week, one of the car auctions that everybody sees on TV and all the different things, all of a sudden, 69 Camaros are starting to sell for 40 grand, identical cars. Do, do I get to come back to you and say, hey, Jim, you know, I just insured this for 20 as, as agreed value, but now they're selling for 40. Can I can I raise my? Well, can hopefully I, we didn't make that mistake at the outset. But yes, we adjust policies every day, hundreds of times, because right. we've got a we've got a market now, particularly in muscle cars right now. By the way, muscle cars are hot again, and uh, you just call up and you say, "Well, you want to increase the value? Maybe you did it because you and we have both noticed the value is going up on certain marks of cars." Or you tell us what you did. You got it repainted. You rechromed the bumpers. You put new upholstery in it, or something like that. You uh, rebuilt the engine, and you added this much investment and value to the car. And ninety percent of the time, it's just done with a quick phone call. And sometimes we might ask for a picture of the work that you've done. Right. So then, what determines you know Grundy's rates? If if, if I'm going to Grundy and I'm getting classic car insurance. The rates a classic car insurer are going to charge are, are typically less than a conventional, if I can use that word, automobile insurance company. Why are the rates so been, much less? We've been telling people for years that our rates are about 30 to 35% of standard automobile insurance rates, and that's for a bunch of really good reasons, mostly because of the people we insure. And the first one of them is, when was the last time you saw a guy driving down the road with a 69 Camaro texting? He's not doing it. <laughs> right. When was the last time you saw a woman drive to work in a 69 Camaro putting her makeup on at the red light and then proceeding right. down the highway right. with her, well, with her uh, you know, eyebrow pencil in her hand? That's because a Never 69 happened. Camaro required two hands on the wheel and clear well, focus because you were driving the car. The car didn't drive you. Um, well, you know, that's absolutely true. But, you know, car guys are the same thing today. When they get in their car to go somewhere, and it's actually true of their new cars, and we've proven that, they're interested in getting in the car for the driving experience, whether it's an old car or a new car. And car collectors are better drivers than people who just use cars as a mode of transportation to get from A, B, right. A to B. They're right. car people. Right. That's right. the number one reason. Yeah. The number two reason is... We require that the cars be garaged when they're not being driven so that there's protection against them being stolen or, you know, damaged on the street. Number three, we require that our policyholders 
have another car for daily driving to and from work and shopping so that our cars aren't aren't subjected to commuting hours of driving and that sort of thing. And parking that can't even be done on a blue, you know, once in a blue moon. I mean, right. I'd be a liar if I told you that on a sunny day in June, I'm not going to drive one of my collector cars to work. Well, and I understand my customers do it too, but it can't be an everyday affair. It can't be an everyday event. Hey, Jim, sit tight. We're going to pull over and take a pause. I don't want to, there's, there's just so much here and it's just so good. I don't want to rush this. Let me pull over, take a pause and uh, do what I have to do when we'll be right back. I'm Ron Anning, the car doctor. We're talking with Jim Grundy, president of Grundy Insurance. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Ron Anning, the car doctor. We are back. We're here talking with Jim Grundy of Grundy Insurance. Jim and I are just chatting up a storm. It's just uh, you get car guys together, and this is what happens. Jim, thanks for sticking around during the pause. Um, so we understand why why rates are different, and we understand agreed value and stated value now, and 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 how guidelines are determined for value of vehicle. Classic car or classic vehicle insurance. Does it cover vehicle repairs and breakdowns on the road in the shop? How does that work? What should they look for? Uh, we have to give our policyholders some coverage for that. I mean, Lord knows we all know antique cars break down from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> so depend, depending on what state our policy is in, we give customers a few hundred dollars, four or five hundred dollars worth of coverage for, uh, for towing and a breakdown if they have one. And that coverage even extends to... Uh, Extra expenses, you know, if you take your car and you say go go uh, to the shore for the weekend or something like that, and you're broken down on Sunday night, you got to spend an extra night in the hotel. We'll pay, pick up that tab under that coverage as well. So we try to make the experience of a breakdown. It's bad enough to have a breakdown at all, but to have it be a financial hardship, we we try to cover that. Yeah, um, you're, you're, you're really like a partner with the person that owns the car. You're taking care of them and the car at the same time. I like that. Um, that's a nice touch. Does does classic car insurance limit, you know, should it limit? Everybody's afraid, oh, I can't get classic car insurance. I won't be able to drive the car. You know, does that limit how often they're allowed to drive it? We don't limit how often you're allowed to drive the car. We think that you should drive the car, you know, enough to keep it running in good good order and enough to enjoy it. You know, a lot of people do have that concern and they wonder about it. Yeah. As I said earlier, we don't expect you to commute in it. We don't expect you to drive it to the mall, but we certainly expect you to enjoy it on weekends after work to the grocery store, to the ice cream shop, or, you know, just fun driving just as you would. And as I said earlier, the main test is, do you have another car for your daily driving and for bad weather driving and so forth? Do you, do you, so you you don't really care if they go two thousand a year or 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 ten thousand a year. It's it's you know, Ron, Ron. As you mentioned, I'm a brass car collector, which means I collect cars of the era before odometers or speedometers existed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> frankly, on the cars that I have, most of them wouldn't work if I did install them because the tires are so big and the wheels are so out around that I would never get an accurate reading. Right. So we can't put a mileage limitation on our policies. So, so, so the odometer police aren't coming to somebody's house to say, "Okay, how far did you go?" It doesn't really matter. Well, you know, there was an insurance company one time that did have a twenty-five hundred mile warranty on their policies, 
I thought, well, heck, what do you do if you hit twenty four ninety nine and you're driving home and you're five miles away? Right. I guess you're supposed to stop and call up and buy another policy real quick, or, or get it, or get it flatbedded. <laughs> I can't imagine. So, Jim Grundy, I have had so much fun with you this afternoon. I've got to tell you, it's been a me great, too, Ron. great Thank time. You. But let me ask you before you go. I got two quick questions. The first one's easy. Where can the listeners go get more information? www.grundy.com. And I always ask my car guy guests. So what was your first car? What lit your fire? <laughs> My mother's used Woody Station wagon. What year? 1964. Yeah, and what was so special about it? It was a, it, it had wheels and it ran, and I could drive it to school. <laughs> and by the time I was done with it, I think all the interior was gone because my buddies beat it all up, and I finally, I remember when I got rid of that car, the engine ran, but the transmission was shot. And I called the guy at the junkyard, and I said, uh, what will you give me for it? And he said, well, if it's drivable, I'll give you 100 bucks. If you got to get it towed in, I'll only give you 60 So we pulled the car, we towed the car to about a half a mile from his shop. We pushed it real hard. We got the engine running. I rolled in and pulled up and said, where's my $100? <laughs> Jim Grundy, we're going to have you back, sir. Um, just a good time, and uh, you, have a good, you have a good cruising season this summer. And uh, we'll talk you again too, real Ron. soon. You take good care. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Bye -bye. I'm Ron Anating, The Car Doctor, and we are back right after this. <laughs> Welcome back. Ron and Andy, the car doctor. Once again, thanks to Jim Grundy, Grundy Insurance, for taking the time today. You know, you know, and during that interview, and I'm thinking about it, right, classics. You think about classic cars, and I was thinking about probably the most classic or one of the most classic car movies of all times, Smokey and the Bandit. I was watching it the other day. <laughs> and, you, you know, Tom, I started thinking as I'm watching the movie how politically incorrect and how it wouldn't work today. Really? Yeah, well, take the scene where they're on the CB radio. Okay. Well, the CB radio was the form of communication. That's distracted driving, isn't it? Well, technically, yes, but like in New York State, there is an exemption for ham radio operators, so because, because it's an FCC-licensed thing, so the C, and as is CB, so that may carry over. But you're not driving while you're working your ham radio. No, you can. You can drive and work your ham radio. Can you? Yes. But you wonder, is that distracted driving? And think about how a modern version of Smokey and the Bandit wouldn't work. Okay. All right, the scene where they pull up in the town when he's getting when he's getting the beer from Texarkana, and and the Trans Am slides into the you know in front of and, and hits the brakes and they squeal and the car kind of slides. The cars would have ABS today. It exactly, just, it's it not going to squeal. It would just kind of you know. And if it was an electric car, forget it. The movie would be boring. What is it going to be if it was all you know? If we ever have robot police and self-driving cars? Are they going to chase each other, right? You know, <laughs> would the robots revolt? I'm thinking, thank God I grew up when I did, because at least car movies and chases and all that stuff, it was fun to watch. It was fun to watch, and it was fun to participate if you participated. And, yeah, and <laughs> I just, you know, you look at car movies, and as the technology moves us forward, and technology is really accelerating, and they say the next five years' worth of car technology is going to make the past 25 look like it was standing still. You know, you've really got to sit there and appreciate what you've seen at this point and what's yet to come. But you've got to look back at even how it affects classic movies and classic cars because 
it's just never going to be the same. It's like it's like the great wild west. You're seeing it disappear one piece at a time and being replaced by something else. And it makes me happy to be here taking care of all the cars and all the problems. And I am really happy to be here. And because of that, I am Ron Anany and the Car Doctor reminding you, good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. 